Welcome to this Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. We're here today with Amanda Leonard, an advanced nutrition practitioner at the Johns Hopkins Children's Center in Baltimore. And we're here to discuss her recent newsletter issue on new guidelines in nutritional management for patients with cystic fibrosis. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AbbVie Incorporated, and Chiesi USA Incorporated. Learning objectives for today's audio program include describe the nutrition-related recommendations in the CF Foundation's preschool guidelines, summarize the recommendations in the enteral feeding guidelines and how to apply those in a clinical setting, and discuss the impact of Ivacaftor on weight in children with cystic fibrosis. Amanda Leonard has disclosed that she has served as an advisor consultant to Alcresta. She has indicated that there will be no references to the unlabeled or unapproved use of any drugs or products in today's discussion. Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. I'm really excited to be here. I want to begin our discussion today with a quotation. As the field of nutrition and cystic fibrosis changes and evolves, new guidelines are needed to ensure the practitioners are provided up-to-date information. That's from your newsletter, Amanda. You wrote that, and then you went on to review two of the newer guidelines from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and explain the evidence behind their recommendations. What I'd like to do today is look at the benefits of applying that guidance from a clinical perspective. Uh, So if you would, please, Amanda, start us out with a patient scenario. So I do have a preschool patient that we've been following. AJ's a three-year-old female who was diagnosed with CF at birth. At her last clinic visit, her weight was at the 5th percentile, BMI was at the 35th percentile, and her average daily weight gain was about 4 grams per day. Mom reports she's always been a picky eater and has a long history of food refusal and sometimes takes her up to 45 minutes to finish a meal. The family's tried a variety of supplements at home, but she really doesn't seem to like any of them. She complains about belly aches five or six times a week, and her enzyme dose seems to be reasonable at about 2,200 units of lipase per kilo per meal. So the first thing I want to ask you is, is this three-year-old at nutritional risk? What does the guidance say? That's a great question, Bob. According to the new CFF preschool guidelines, AJ is at nutritional risk. Her BMI is less than the 50th percentile, and her weight for age is less than the 10th percentile. She's also not meeting the average daily weight gain goals of 6 grams per day with her. She's only been gaining about 4 grams per day. So according to all three criteria, she meets the definition of nutritional risk. How would you assess this patient? There's a few different areas that I would look at. First, I would take a close look at the diet history and see what is AJ really taking in. It sounds like it's taking her a long time to eat. How many calories is she eating during those mealtimes? And maybe get a little more details about the parent-child interaction. Is there frustration or nagging? Is it sort of mealtimes stressful? And I would also want to find out a little bit more about the belly aches and the stool history because five to six times per week for belly aches is more than we want in any of our patients with CF. Based on what you find out from that assessment, what are some of the initial interventions you might recommend? So depending on the answers to some of the questions, we might change around either the dosing of the enzymes or maybe the timing to see if that can help with the belly aches or look at if there's some other adjunct therapy like adding acid suppression to maybe help with the enzyme efficacy and also see if we might want to have some sort of behavioral intervention or a time limit on meals to help with the parent-child interaction and maybe to limit some of the stress around mealtimes. And I definitely would want to see AJ back at clinic in eight weeks or even 
even sooner to see if the interventions helped, and if not, we would need to move on to the next step. Talk to us about that next step. Would that include referral to a specialist? So when AJ comes back to clinic, depending on her weight gain, it could be that we would just continue with the current plan and keep a close eye. If she's meeting the average daily weight gain and is closer to meeting BMI and weight for age percentile goals, we could just stay the course. But oftentimes, especially with the preschoolers, a referral to a behavioral psychologist for a little bit more in-depth behavior intervention could be really helpful. And also with the belly aches, an assessment by a gastroenterologist to evaluate if there's some other cause, if making little tweaks to the enzymes isn't helping to find out if there's some other root cause for the belly aches to help us figure out the whole picture. Uh, let's suppose she was referred to a gastroenterologist for assessment. What might the GI be looking for? So that's a great question, Bob. The gastroenterologist would be looking for other causes besides malabsorption or inadequate enzyme replacement causing her belly aches. Could be constipation, obstipation, maybe reflux, small bowel overgrowth, celiac disease, motility disorders, lots of other things beyond just pancreatic insufficiency that could be causing her belly aches. We want to make sure that those are adequately treated. Let's assume that the gastroenterology findings are all negative, that there's nothing untoward going on. What might you then suggest for this patient? Would appetite stimulants be appropriate? AJ is a little on the young side for appetite stimulants. At our institution, we don't use them in patients that young. Our next line of defense, if the behavioral therapy is not as helpful and the gastroenterologist workup is negative, would be to think about an enteral feeding tube. So we probably would be talking to the family and we hopefully would have brought it up already as a potential option, but as something to give calories when AJ is not able to take in adequate calories by mouth. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, Amanda. And we'll return with Amanda Leonard from the Johns Hopkins Children's Center in just a moment. This is Bob Busker. I'm managing editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. Each issue reviews the current literature in areas of importance to pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, infectious disease specialists, pediatricians, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, nurses, and physical therapists. Bi-monthly podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts, providing case-based scenarios to help bring that new information into practice in the clinic. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. Continuing education credit for each issue in each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information on this educational activity, to subscribe to and receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge, and to access back issues, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. I'd also like to tell you about the CF Family Day Meeting Builder. This is a one-stop shop to help you create patient and caregiver educations and family day meetings. To find out more, please visit www.cffamilyday.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, and we're here today with Amanda Leonard from the Johns Hopkins Children's Center. We've been discussing how the new CF Foundation guidelines in nutritional management can be applied in the clinic. So to continue in that vein, Amanda, if you would please, bring us another patient scenario. JT is a 24-year-old male with CF, and he's had a history of poor weight gain most of his life. His current BMI is 20.2 kilograms per meter squared, so below the goal of 23. He's been on appetite stimulants, and he reports that he eats all day long. He has one to two form stools per day. 
no problems with belly aches, and his enzyme dose is about 2,000 units of lipase per kilo per day. So JT came to clinic today to see what we might be able to offer for him in terms of his weight and his desire to improve his weight. Take us through your steps in assessing this 24-year-old. So according to the new enteral feeding guidelines, we want to make sure that we rule out other causes for malnutrition, make sure that JT doesn't have CF-related diabetes or other GI issues that have been undiagnosed. I would also want to assess his intake and see how many calories is he really eating when he's eating all day and make sure that he's eating all day of high-calorie foods, not eating all day fruits and vegetables that may fill you up but don't help with the weight gain. Another thing I would look for is barriers to intake. Are there financial issues? Does he run out of money for food? Is he busy with his job and he doesn't have time to make food or he's trying to eat on the run? Once we've looked at all of those potential options or potential issues, we would also discuss options that we have with JT for gaining weight, looking at ways to increase his intake, see if he wants to try other supplements, and also bring up the idea of enteral feeding as an option if we can't get his weight to improve with oral intake. What other workups might you recommend for this patient? So I think JT should definitely have an oral glucose tolerance test to make sure that he doesn't have CF-related diabetes or just impaired glucose tolerance. And if his OGTT was abnormal, we would refer him to an endocrinologist. I also think that an assessment by a gastroenterologist to see if there are other causes for inadequate weight gain. If there's constipation or bacterial overgrowth, that there could be other things going on that are causing him to have inadequate gains. So what happens, and let's assume it's the case for this patient, what happens if the endocrinologist and the gastroenterologist do not find anything relevant? Would it be time to seriously consider enteral tube feeding? Absolutely. I think that that would be the logical next step. That being the case, how would you present it to the patient and the family? How would you involve them in making this decision? So I really would want to have been talking about enteral feeds as an option from the beginning so that JT and his family knew that this is something that might be a good treatment option for them in the future. And we want to make sure that we provide information about all of the options, including tubes, and discuss the pros and cons of each so that they can really play an active role in the decision-making process. Another thing that's really important is to make sure that we answer questions and also provide them with information, written or electronic or verbal, however they seem to receive information the best, so that they can think about it and sort of process it and come up with any questions that we have. Especially with our adult patients, we want to make sure that they're involved in the goal setting. So we will set goals, and if they achieve goals with the tools that we're using, then we can continue along that path. But then it becomes more obvious if we're setting goals for weight gain and they're not achieved that we need to try something new, and this is where we would tie back to the enteral feedings as one of the options. What kind of barriers have you encountered when you explain to a patient that an enteral tube is the most effective way to go? I think there's a variety of barriers. A common one is they're worried that they're not going to be able to eat by mouth anymore, and we generally give them their enteral feedings at night so they can eat what they want during the day. And another common concern is that they won't be able to be as active as they were. And with proper care, they should be able to participate in all the activities that they did before, obviously in consultation with their doctor. But I think education to reassure. And when you come up with the barriers and they have questions, to make sure that you have an open discussion so they can feel like they're getting the information they need to make the decision that's right for them. Let's assume that this patient does accept enteral feeding. What kind of formula and on what kind of schedule would you recommend? What does the new CF Foundation guidance say? So the guidelines 
do not recommend a specific kind of formula because there really isn't enough data. At our institution, we generally start with an intact formula and then assess tolerance. And schedule guidelines do recommend nighttime continuous feeds as the starting point for almost all patients. What this allows is us to adjust the nighttime feeds based on their schedule and allows them to eat during the day. So what we do at our center is we try and figure out how long the patient's going to be asleep and how many calories we want to give them during that time. And that lets us figure out how long and how fast to run the feeds. Because obviously you don't want to have the feeds run for 12 hours if someone's only going to sleep for six hours because then they're hooked up to their tube for six hours when they're awake. We really want to try and make it fit into their life. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, Amanda. And let's continue, if you would, please, with one more patient scenario. So, Bob, our last patient is K.A., who's a seven-year-old female with CF. She has one copy of the G551D mutation. She reports at her clinic visit that she eats well and has been following a high-calorie, high-fat diet, which she's been on since birth when she was diagnosed. She's been on Ivacaftor for about six months and has gained four kilos in the past three months. Her BMI at the visit today is at the 85th percentile, which is up by 35% from her last clinic visit. Her enzyme dose is about 21-25 units of lipase per kilo per meal, and KA's mom is concerned about the weight gain and she wants to stop the enzymes. So what's your assessment of this child? Is her mother right to be concerned about her weight gain? So KA's rate of weight gain is definitely faster than expected. She was meeting the CF Foundation BMI goals prior to starting Ivacaftor, and since being on Ivacaftor, obviously her intake or maybe her absorption has improved for some reason, her rate of weight gain has really increased. We want to be careful that she doesn't become overweight or obese because that is really not our goal for the CF population. What about stopping her pancreatic enzymes? I definitely would not stop the enzymes. There's no good evidence that pancreatic function returns with Ibacaftor. I think the absorption might be better and the lungs are functioning better so the calorie needs are less but we definitely don't want to completely stop the pancreatic enzymes. I think that would have a potential negative impact because it might cause an obstruction. It's kind of a very new thing for clinicians to have to worry about, obesity in a patient with CF. I agree that it's definitely a newer finding that we're worrying about obesity in the CF population. As we get newer treatments and therapies and the nutrition is improving, it's definitely something that we need to keep an eye on. So in the seven-year-old, what diet changes would you suggest? That's a really good question, Bob. And for KA, I would suggest following a lower-calorie diet. So check to see how many snacks she's having and maybe cut back on some of the junk food and switch from whole milk to 2% milk or maybe even to skim milk. Basically move more towards a heart-healthy diet that's the recommendation for the general population. Overall, then, what would your nutritional goals be for this patient? So at our center, our goals would be to have her BMI between the 50th and the 85th percentile, and we would want her to follow a heart-healthy diet. I would want to continue to monitor her weight gain and rate of weight gain and try and identify trends so that we can make changes as indicated. So it could be that we need to encourage her to increase her activity in addition to having a healthier diet or a lower calorie diet. We would want to really keep track of how she was doing and make sure that she was maintaining a healthy weight. So with that goal in mind, how would you monitor her? I would definitely want to see KA at least every three months 
to see if we needed to make any additional changes. As she's working on decreasing her intake, we would want to see is her weight gain still faster than we wanted or has it plateaued? And we also want to make sure that she doesn't go too far the other direction. Sometimes when people, when you suggest that they cut back, they might be a little bit overzealous and then end up losing weight, which is not our goal. We want her to sort of grow into her weight because as a seven-year-old, we're not looking for any weight loss. We just want to slow her down her rate of weight gain. So I think that close monitoring at follow-up visits at least every three months would be the best way to keep track. Thank you for today's cases and discussion, Amanda. Let me change gears on you a little bit here and ask you to look to the future for us. What changes do you expect to see in the nutritional management of patients with cystic fibrosis? That's a great question, Bob. I really think that we're moving more towards mutation-specific treatment recommendations. I think that at some point we're going to say, this is your mutation, this is the therapy you're on, these are the nutrition recommendations. I think that the idea that there will be an overarching certain way to approach CF nutrition for everybody is something that is moving to the back burner, that we're going to say, okay, if you are on this therapy, then this is how you should achieve your goals. I think the goals will be similar, but I think the way that we get there will be really different. And I also think as more data is available to clinicians, we can tailor our recommendations and hopefully we'll have some new guidelines be developed for some of the new therapies that are coming out. And I also think that at some point we might have people with CF following a heart-healthy diet, just like the general population, as the treatments continue to improve, we might be able to make the high-calorie, high-fat diet a thing of the past. Thank you for sharing your insights, Amanda. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, the nutrition-related recommendations in the CF Foundation's preschool guidelines. So I think the big nutrition take-home messages from the guidelines were that preschoolers should have weight and height measurements taken at each visit and BMI should be calculated. And your goal BMI is greater than or equal to the 50th percentile and your weight for age goal is greater than or equal to the 10th percentile. Nutrition risk definitions were given for this age group, BMI less than the 50th, weight for age percentile less than the 10th, a rate of weight gain less than the 50th percentile for age, or any inappropriate weight loss would put a child in the nutrition risk category. Another helpful guideline from the publication was calorie goals. So your goal of more than 90 to 110 calories per kilo per day for preschool-age children and protein needs at least 13 grams a day for two- to three-year-olds and 19 grams per day for four- to five-year-olds. I think that the guidelines also really stress the need to assess for behavior issues, refer as needed, and also make sure that GI issues are being identified and treated as needed. I think frequent follow-up and a multidisciplinary approach were two of the cornerstones of the guidelines. And our second learning objective, the enteral feeding guideline recommendations and how to apply those in a clinical setting. Well, applying these guidelines, Bob, in a clinical setting is really important. You want to make sure that you have a multidisciplinary approach and you have the appropriate workup so that you assess for other causes of malnutrition before you decide that a feeding tube is the right choice. The guidelines didn't give a specific suggestion for a formula, but any formula that's tolerated should be used. And there are no specific recommendations for enzymes, again, because they did not have enough data to support one specific approach. Most feeds should start as overnight continuous feeds and allow for oral intake during the day. You want to make sure that the patient receives education before the tube is placed, during the tube process, and also after discharge to make sure that all of their questions are answered and that they're really part of the process. And our final objective, the impact of Ivacaftor on weight in children with CF. 
Ibuprofen has definitely been shown to increase the rate of weight gain in children with CF. It's something that we want to make sure that we monitor so that our children maintain a healthy weight and don't gain weight too quickly. This is a new finding in the CF community that we're worried about obesity, but I think that it's something that could definitely become a problem if it's not monitored appropriately. From the Johns Hopkins Children's Center, Amanda Leonard, Advanced Nutrition Practitioner. Thank you for participating in this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. I really enjoyed it. It was a great time. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AbbVie Incorporated, and Chiesi USA Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. <laughs>